Sequence is loading. Do you understand me, Denny? I would sooner leap from the window than see your lips move. The sight of which is the visual cue that feculent blather is about to spew forth. This is no way for a therapist to talk to a patient. Are you ready? Denny Craig. All right, everybody. Walk and love. Thought he was a clown. I'm not laughing. Get up! From Forest Rain Studios, you're sitting in the home of Boston-Legal.org. And we've got you plugged in tightly to Boston Illegal Radio. This week, it's a story of firing on your therapist, old footage, kissing, walking while black, and taking aim at that fourth wall. It's Sunday, April 30, 2006, and it's just a few days after Boston Legal Tuesdays. I'm Dana Greenlee, your host, and you're listening to Boston Illegal. That's the unofficial weekly audio experience of Boston Legal. That means we can do whatever we want, Deb. (laughs) And that, of course, is the David E. Kelly finely toothed comb produced television show that's right here in the U.S. at ABC. And with the help of 20th Century Fox, of course, and all the good, talented, hardworking, but about to go on vacation people at David (laughs) Kelly Productions. (laughs) Today's Boston Legal Radio is, well, we're going to open the book on that episode that they call Race Ipsa. It's episode 23 of season two. Oh, I am so lucky. You've heard her laughing already in the background. I am joined by the most effervescent, funny, cool really unpretentious actress and comedian you could ever meet. She is a cast member from this episode. You saw her right before the opening credits. It was, there she was, and then there was the opening credits. So (laughs) she basically launched the show. I'm talking about the wonderful actress, Deb Height. Welcome to the show, Deb. Thank you so much, Dana. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. And in fact, everybody would want to have you around if they were going to get shot by their therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Because you will come running in and basically render the assailant motionless by your screaming. (laughs) Oh, yes. I've got that scream. You do. And (laughs) if all else fails, you're going to whip out that accordion. I'm going to talk to you about that in a second. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's going to be here with us and talk about her storyline. Of course, the one involving Denny Crane and Sydney Field and her character, which is Sydney Field's assistant. And uh, then because this episode was so unique with its self-referential moments, we're going to talk about some of those great lines in the dialogue. Deb has clued me in on a lot of them even before it aired. So I was really appreciative of that. Then we'll be joined by another Deb. She's here every week. She's from Montreal, Canada. And she always brings us the Parallel Universe Trek in the Courtroom. I understand Denny Crane's favorite segment in this podcast. I kid. (laughs) (laughs) She's found a lot of similar themes on the racial issues and, of course, kissing. Kissing and TV shows. What can you say? There was a lot of kissing on this episode, actually. Oh, more than just the the Brad storyline, right? Yeah. Ah. Well, we'll get into that (laughs) kissing soon. (laughs) Talk about your website just a minute, and then we're going to talk about Boston Legal. Okay, debheight.com. It's D-E-B-H-I-E-T-T.com, um, which was um, built by the love of my life, Matt Valenti, um, who's also at mattvalenti.com. Um, now, but, is this a, a love that he builds great websites or a love beyond that? Oh, uh, this is a romantic love of okay. my life. Oh, how sweet. Yes. Well, he and does a great job. He, yes, and he is also an amazing actor, producer, and he and I are working on a documentary about traffic. 
Oh. Which is called, which we actually, if someone wants to visit, it's trafficdocumentary.com. See, I've got a lot of dot coms oh, I can good. plug here. Yes, you can. You got all those <laughs> domains. Now, but this is interesting from a girl who loves to drive her Toyota all over the place. <laughs> but it's, it's a serious, it's not a tongue in cheek traffic. Well, it's, it's, um, it's still in the early stages, but what we're, what we're doing is we're inviting people to, to give us their traffic stories via the website. Oh. And what we're going to do is sort of build documentary around real life stories. You got to differentiate yourself from the movie traffic, which is a whole is different kind of traffic. Yeah, we're definitely different from the movie traffic, yeah. <laughs> but that should be fun. And um, and I'll be updating my reel actually very soon to include this clip from Boston Legal. So. Fantastic! And everybody, I want you to go check out her blog because she actually posts stuff in a timely manner, unlike so many. <laughs> and, and then people comment, and she'll comment right back. So I do, and also it's it's not a blog where I just say, well, I got up late this morning, and I had to take my cat to the... It's actually, it's more centered towards uh, events or um, Mm -hmm. specific things that are happening or other places people can go, like bostonlegal.org. Oh, yeah, thank you. And you've got your newsletter that will mirror probably that news, so people can sign up for that. Exactly. Um, Now, since we talked just a little bit about bostonlegal.org there, I want Mm -hmm. to um, ask you specifically what it was like when you, well, how did you find out about that part? Did your manager call you? And what was that audition moment like for you? I I have a wonderful agent named Craig Holzberg. I have to plug him at Avalon Artist Group. He's a New Yorker transplant as well. And he has a great relationship with Valco Miller Casting, which does all the casting for Boston Mm -hmm. Legal. And for a role this small, they tend to bring in people that have been uh, seen for other roles, as opposed to put out put out a casting notice for someone who can scream. Mm-hmm. They just look through the files of people that, for whatever reason, didn't get other jobs, and so mm-hmm. they called me in to come in and scream for them. <laughs> and it was it was actually a really fun audition, not only because I didn't have to memorize lines, but <laughs> um, because I got to sit there and listen to the three or four actresses before me that went in to scream. Are you saying everybody watched each other? That's how it's done. <laughs> you know, it was actually in. It, we did, you wouldn't see the other person, but you could hear oh, them because course. they were screaming their their head off. <laughs> and I I went in and I I just commented on the fact that it was really difficult to practice screaming out here in New York. You could just scream walking down the street, no <laughs> one would look at you twice. But out here, even in my car with the windows at a stoplight, I would practice screaming, and the person in the car next to me would look over and say, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just practicing." <laughs> and so I got in the room and I just I just screamed my scream, and everyone jumped, oh. and they had heard people scream all day. And I thought, "Ooh, that's interesting." And and Lou, who was the director, who was amazing to work with, actually said, "Oh my God, you made my blood run cold." Uh, and I said, that's the nicest thing anyone said to me all day. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Lou was there casting. And, you know, and I have to say, and we'll hear your scream shortly, but there was like this, it was a two-tone scream. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. I worked very hard on that. Multi, <laughs> multi-tonal. Yeah. That's what we that's call amazing. it in the business. Oh, multi- oh, wow. Who knew it was labeled? That's great. And did they just say at that point, blood ran cold, fill out the form, please? I mean, <laughs> no, they said, you know, thank you very much. And... I mean, it's funny because it's so weird in this business when you can go in and have a great audition, everyone just fawn all over you, and then you never hear from them again mm. because there's so many different things, different reasons they cast different people, and mm. oh, we don't want a blonde for this, we really want a brunette, so she doesn't look like the other character, blah blah blah. So you never know, yeah. you never know. But I felt I felt good about, it. and it was fun. You know, it makes such a difference when the casting people are relaxed and having fun themselves. Are they like that? Yeah, they actually were. And it, this was on a Friday at 5 o'clock or something oh. grisly. So they they had been seeing people all day and 
making difficult decisions all day, and I, I can totally understand it when they're fried and they're just cranky, and they said, just come in and scream and leave. But they were so, they were just in a really good mood, I guess, <laughs> and just nice people. And How long so, did they make you wait to find out? Actually, not that long. It's, they shoot at, down in Manhattan Beach, and it's, it's kind of a drive to get there. And I was freaking out because I was stuck in traffic on the 405, which is fodder for the documentary. But <laughs> I, by finally, I, got, I got there, and I ran in, and I signed in, and they called me in pre- pretty much within 10, 15 minutes. So that's, that's kind of ideal. I mean, make you wait for the, the you're hired. <laughs> that actually about two hours later they called oh that's good before the weekend you didn't yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's great. Yeah, that was nice. now have you watched much boston legal prior to that um i had watched it occasionally i wasn't the avid fan that i am now mm-hmm. um but i really liked the tone of the show how about um, you watch any other david e. kelly series like ally i was or i was really practice. into the, the practice yeah i just think he's such a smart writer and and anytime that you don't quite know what's going to happen next it is a show i want to watch and that's why i i'm also a fan of jj abrams and and alias and lost because you really aren't sure what's going to happen next you can't you can't figure it out ahead of time which a lot of shows tend to write that way that mm-hmm. you know you can kind of see it coming and with these shows you just you really can't see it coming so well, and there's one thing to write can't see it coming mystery shows, but nothing to write can't see it coming comedy and, you know, mixed in with the little serious drama tones. Exactly. And, and, and to be able to have uh, actors that can go, that can make those shifts, I think is really a key to its, its success as well. Well, you know, you're lucky because you were in one of the, speaking of David E. Kelly, he wrote this one. And yes, he writes the majority of the scripts for Boston Legal. I think this was his 25th writing credit in the span of the history of Boston Legal. But really, only the um, sixth one that he wrote just solely by himself. And hey, you were in that one. I I know. I feel very lucky. <laughs> um, not only because of that, but because I actually had an encounter with him on the set. I am so. And this is exactly what everyone listening you can get when you go to debheight.com because this is where it was revealed. <laughs> and she, I'm, that's all I'm going to let you say. But it's an amazing encounter and a rare one. It's very rare because I had heard that he um, he really, although he's very hands on with the creation of the script, he's very he's he never comes to the set. I mean that's that's sort of the legend. I think he I don't even think he lives his home base. I think is even up in Palo Alto or someplace, mm-hmm. not even in Los Angeles anymore. And so sightings, you know, David E. Kelly sightings are rare. Mm-hmm. And um, I was uh, I had just been brought to the set from my dressing room. We were rehearsing it i was behind the closed door and the assistant director said when you hear the gunshot just give it a beat and then open the door walk in and scream it's we're just rehearsing and i said you want me to really scream and they were like yeah go ahead and really scream we'll just hear hear how it sounds okay so i'm waiting i'm listening to the lines going back and forth and i feel a tap on my shoulder someone leans in right to my ear and says when the gun fires i'm going to run in there ahead of you i'm going to run in there instead of you and, you know, it's my butt if, if I let some stagehand run in and play some trick. I, I can't let that happen. So I was about to turn to him and say, you know, buddy, you can shove off because I'm not taking the heat for your... And fortunately, <laughs> fortunately for me, I recognized that it was David E. Kelly himself. Oh, the ghost. Standing there in this, in this casual shirt and these chino pants and these sneakers. And I looked over his shoulder past him at the entire crew who were standing at attention with their jaws dropped and their eyes bugged out. And I thought, 
oh, this is the guy. This and is I God. said, you know what? I'm going to let you do whatever you like. Uh-huh. And he sort of laughed. And I stepped back. And then the gun fired. And he threw open the door, runs in, and he screams like a girl. And everyone laughs hysterically. And everyone's so surprised to see him that it's 45 minutes of everyone just standing around <laughs> talking to him. <laughs> so and much of course, he was thrilled to see Peter McNichol. And they, they were catching up. And, you know, it was, it was like old home week, I guess. But I have to that? tell you that he made a point to talk to not only some of the executive producers who were there, the people in suits, some of guests um, that were on the set. I think there were guests of William Shatner, I'm not sure, because it happened to be William Shatner's birthday the day that we shot. Oh. But he, he, he talked to the bigwigs, he talked to the grips, he talked to the assistant directors, he talked to the makeup people. I mean, he really, he really was the mensch that you read about. <laughs> and it was so, so... Um, it was just refreshing because it, everyone was a little tense that day because they had doubled up. They were shooting two episodes at once. Lots of back and forth going on. Everyone wanted to move through quick. You know, there was it was tense. And mm-hmm. he just made everyone relax. And he even made a point to come over to me and apologize for putting me on the spot. Oh, my goodness. And I said, you know, that's fine. You can be my stand-in anytime you feel like <laughs> it. And he laughed. They laughed. And then he took off. He left. Wow. And it was it was just so nice to see that, you know, because so often you just hear stories of of sort of diva behavior of these people. Mm-hmm. They come in or they're bossy or demanding or, you know, they're feeling the pressure, too, I'm sure. So he for him just to be relaxed and put everyone at ease. And it was it was just great. And you can I mean, I'm just guessing you can see how well he's respected there on the set, the way everybody was kind of you know, in shock. And, yes, and, and respected, fun. but not feared. It was yeah. a real difference. It was a real genuine sort of respect and, and surprised that he was there, but not like, oh my God, now we're about to get caught. It was like, oh no. great, he's here. How wonderful. Oh, that's wonderful. I just can't imagine why he's not there more often. I mean, I understand you know, geography, but that's his baby, you know. That's I know. His project. It's funny because every single door has his name on it. You know, it's oh. David E. Kelly Studios <laughs> yeah. everywhere. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably healthier for him to not be in that in terms of just yeah. being, you know, staying a regular guy. He is definitely involved. Obviously, he's written yes. all the scripts. I'm sure he's on the phone and, you know, emailing and such all the time. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, I, and I'm sure he's he's kept informed uh, on a minute by minute basis. Yeah. But just to have to for physically for him to be there is such a different experience. Wish, sure. You know, someone was taping that. Re- someone must have taped that rehearsal. You know, the, I don't know. They normally film when you're just doing a run through. They, they do, they weren't filming at that because they weren't, you know, they didn't get a heads up. The camera guys didn't get a heads up ah. to start rolling. It was just, it was really like he snuck in. He snuck in. <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty funny. And, you know, I always get this impression of him, not that you ever really see him, but, you know, I saw him on a panel discussion once and he just seemed very stoic. I mean, I think he smiled once. I mean, amiable, but just, you know, he's that reserved. very reserved. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Quiet. Yeah. Thoughtful. Yeah. Anyway, that's the best story ever. <laughs> <laughs> we love him. <laughs> we love him even more now that Deb has shared the true spirit of David E. Kelly. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. And and again, you mentioned, and we'll get into soundbite here with Peter McNichol, but they've had such a history together and good times. And I'm sure he asked for him specifically to play Sidney Field. And, I'm, I'm sure he did, yes. And the fact that it was um, William Shatner's birthday, it was just like, was meant to be that day. I know, isn't that funny? Yeah, that's well, great. Yeah. Talk a little bit about Lou Antonio, who's your director. What a, what an amazing guy and and such a um such a, a career he's had, you know, it's really impressive 
to be around somebody that's had the experience that he's had in the business. And um, he was also just very relaxed. And um, if, anytime I had a question, and he was, he was right there, and he was very patient, and um, I, he was just wonderful to work with. You know, it's interesting, um, and I didn't discover this, uh, one of my brilliant contributors to the forum did, but you may know that one, of course, he's been an actor as well as a director for mm-hmm. eons, and he was in the original Star Trek back in 69. And his character name was, is very similar to the name of this episode. His character name was Loquar, I'm probably not saying that right, Loquar, and then Race Ipsa is a play on Res Lequar. Oh, I can't speak Latin. <laughs> but anyway, the middle word there that they took out for the episode, Lequar, is very similar to his name and stuff. Oh, we just love weird things like that. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, lo- I love that. And he was um, the director in, in Cancer Man Can. That was the debut of the Michael J. Fox storyline, which I hope you saw. That was a moving episode. because It was, yes. Jerry Espenson hands Christian Clemenson kind of lost it in that episode and <laughs> took a knife to Shirley Schmidt's neck that was an amazing episode to direct but anyway yeah. well without further ado let's talk about ah race ipsa and this storyline which i like to call uncontrollable urge or maybe it's a death wish i don't know which but <laughs> there was a little bit of and so there's no better way to start out this um the set up this storyline than just to play the first scene this is all happening before the opening credits and i'm going to do it in three parts because i just want to get your reaction and it's because it's a rather long scene but it's great dialogue between Denny Crane and Sidney Field, his psychiatrist there, sitting in Sidney Field's office. Start with the first one. Okay. It's just that I feel my song is still in me. What song? My song. Everybody has a song in them. Sidney, you should know that. Oh, I see. And yours is still unsung. Is that it? Nah. I mean, here I am in my 70s and I still feel that everything I wanted to express in life is still bottled up inside me like a, a kidney stone. Talk to me, Cindy. What are you thinking? I think you're bored, Denny. Bored? How can I be bored? I'm Denny Crane. Even the sound of my name fascinates. More, Cindy. More about me. <laughs> yeah, okay. And you listened to that line probably... 30 times or at least for hours upon hours, right? Oh, yes. I was actually on set for about 10 hours that day. Amazing. And was that all filming that opening scene or were you hanging around to... No, it was all that opening scene. Wow. Yeah. Now, that there were two things that happened in that soundbite. I'm sure you can name both of them because they have to do with that fourth wall we're going to talk about pretty soon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know one of them, right? The kidney stone? The kidney stone, yep. Yes, which really happened to Mr. Shatner. Right. And so he has to pull that in there. Of course, actually, that wasn't... You know, Shatner talking about that was David E. Kelly. He loves right. to pull from real life. <laughs> I had another guest co-host that was on um, oh, a few months ago, and she she's actually the girl that um, they went up to film an episode last aired this season, but filmed it last season called Finding Nemo. They went up to um, British Columbia and her family's resort up there. And she said one of the crew member told her, be careful whatever you say. If he's in proximity, he usually just hangs back. You don't necessarily know he's standing around there and and he'll be listening. Because if you talk about something you did this week, it, it could appear in a script. You know? Oh, wow. So that's the kidney stone. And then the other thing was, harking back, of course, to Ally McBeal, which you didn't watch much, but um, Peter McNichols, John Cage, you know, was in that episode, in, or in that series. And right. there was just this underlying theme of having theme songs. And I say the song. Yes. Yeah, Denny says, 
uh, you, you know what that's about, right? Having a song, you can't find your song. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was thinking that was a joke on William Shatner having recorded oh. his versions of yes. Rocket Man and Tambourine Man. You and, know, and this from, has been album, the latest one, yes. Yes, exactly. Well, that you know it could be that, too, or but I everything. Don't I don't know. And I love it, because it's all left up to exactly. us to figure <laughs> All right, let's play the next little bit of that scene, because this is just an amazing bit of dialogue that Peter McNichol had to say. It is amazing, isn't it? It is so great. I mean, not just that they have to memorize it, <laughs> but it's just the words that are picked are just amazing. Yes. Well, I think that you are a silver spoon-fed, rich, empty sack who has nothing to do now but count his money or spend it on hookers and therapists who offer up some form of affirmation. And frankly, I'm sick of it. I would no longer even treat you. But for the $600 an hour I charge, which sum, I might assure you, is meant to deter your recurring visits. Do you understand me, Denny? I would sooner leap from the window than see your lips move, the sight of which is the visual cue that feculent blather is about to spew forth. This is no way for a therapist to talk to a patient. My official medical recommendation would be that you take yoga classes so that you might gain the necessary flexibility to stick your head up your ass. I, I do feel like an empty sack sometimes. It occasions depression. It even caused me to buy a handgun to end it. I even carry it around with me, never knowing when I might decide to join the ranks of the unliving. And then I think to myself, how unoriginal. Suicide is so ordinary. But if I were to shoot my doctor, well, Ooh, cliffhanger moment. <laughs> exactly. Oh, spewing that flecculent blather. <laughs> oh, isn't that hysterical? Also, I have to, I have to say, there's a, um, there's one line that they, that they ended up cutting. Oh. But it's right after he said, it's right after Sydney says, take yoga classes so you can gain the necessary flexibility to stick your head up your ass. Yes. There's a pause, and then Sydney says, there. I had to go into therapy myself to work up the courage to say that. Oh. And they cut that. And I guess they cut it just for time reasons, because it's a great line. It's a great line. <laughs> There's other references to just people, you know, thoughts, not words. You know, they say something and they're like, I need to go into therapy for saying that. That was exactly. a bad image. <laughs> oh, man. A- any thoughts on on uh, working with Peter? This is a good time to do it. He was um, the consummate professional. I have to say, my dressing room was next to his and. Um, before he went on the set, he was, he, I could just hear him running these lines, just working on these lines, working on different ways of saying them, working on his character, just up until the very second that he would go onto the set. And, um, you know, this is very funny dialogue, but the, the crew, you know, the crew is kind of blase and they tend to not really laugh at a lot of things or respond very much because they, you know, they've heard it all and they, Definitely were um, having to fight back um, Snickers during some of these amazing lines. And in fact, when, when Peter McNichol's character is uh, shot and he falls back into the chair and slides down, I mean, they did, they did it at least 30 times and in different ways. And every single time, it, it just made everybody laugh because, 
of the way, the look on his face. The first time he did it, he tried to slide down the chair, and um, the chair rolled back out from under him, <laughs> up on the floor. Oh no! And so, of course, that was hysteria. And then everyone's like, "Let him do it like that again." And so he tried like that again. He tried to. It was just, you know, it was great. But he was a real trooper. And there was, you know, anytime there are guns on the set, there's there has to be a, a you know, a, a gun wrangler, a lot of safety issues, and everyone's very careful and. Uh, um, so they, they, they went through that a lot, practiced that a lot and just, you know, made sure that everyone was comfortable with that. Oh, that's, oh, that's good. And we got to play that part. But I just want to mention when you mentioned about him practicing the falling down after being shot, Sue, who's a great contributor to our forum, had just watched, he, he was in Chicago Hope and they had just played right. just like the week before this episode. Um, and by the way, that's a doctor show. And he played a lawyer and here he's a doctor on a lawyer show. <laughs> um, she had mentioned that they just played the hundredth episode sort of retrospective and they brought back a lot of the cast members and Peter's character had died had been shot so they replayed that death scene and he was shot fell back against the wall and slid down just oh like that's the great way. the right. theme there's a theme there <laughs> <laughs> all right now to the climactic <laughs> scream the scream Ah, now, but you see, Denny, that would result in you actually accomplishing something real. You see, something actual, as opposed to the manufactured heroics of your publicist, the mad cow. And then it suddenly might matter, really matter, that you were born. And and how would you handle that after 70-plus years of unmitigated insignificance? You don't think I matter? Oh, pull the trigger, Denny. Do something to rise above your insipid press releases. All the meaninglessness. Just pull it. You think I won't? Actually, I happen to know you will. I happen to know you must. You see, you're pointing a gun at a therapist who's not only got a death wish of his own, but also a life insurance policy, which excludes suicide. And you see, Denny, I've often wondered, how can I possibly end my life without forfeiting my son's Harvard education? But if I were to be murdered, then... So. You must shoot me, or I will shoot you. Go ahead, pull the trigger, or I will kill you. Okay, Sydney. Pull it! I'm not gonna shoot you. Don't be ridiculous. Then you must die. Come on, Sydney. Game's over. Give you the count of three. One. Sydney. Two. For God's sake. Three. Multitonal <laughs> and and kind of a little ah. <laughs> what was your motivation there? <laughs> well, you know, I I actually could speak about my character for for just a second, mm-hmm. Cindy, uh, which we never knew her name, right? I know, but she had it. Meanwhile, on Desperate Housewives, I had lots of lines, but they, I was just woman number one. <laughs> but Cindy, my character in the show, to to my mind, had worked for Doctor Field for about three years. And before the shooting, was actually thinking about quitting and going back to school to be a paralegal because Dr. Field has been acting so weird lately. But after seeing what happened in the courtroom with the trial, Cindy has since given up the idea of law school, and she's, she's currently opening a small craft 
and yarn supply shop called The Knit Picker. Um, there were several other scenes which explained all this on the show, but at some point, fortunately, I realized that they were all just in my own head and not on anyone's shooting schedule. So, um, so all the audience saw of Cindy was the screaming. But um, but we actually know that in the bottom drawer of her desk, she's you know she's had and keeps her knitting needles. Oh yes, yeah. Oh yes. And then and she's actually working on something for Sydney, right? Oh yeah, like well, something to slip his cast in, or exactly. <laughs> actually, it's exactly. See, all these things are important. <laughs> Tell when me you've got all day Sydney. there, and all you're doing is screaming. You come up with lots of backstory. <laughs> you know, Sydney, Sid, Cindy, and Sydney. Oh. Maybe there was a romance that came later. I don't know. A little something, but they they try not to talk about it because they both went to see the movie Secretary. I don't know if you saw that, but they try not to to focus on it too much. They tried to move past it. There were things that happened in his office just that was just late at night once. Exactly. Just once or maybe three times, but they're not going to talk about it again. This reminds me of something you have on your reel. Everybody has to go look at Deb's (laughs) reel. There was a a great sort of primetime interview thing going on there. Wow. You know, did you get to pick your wardrobe? You know, I have I have a great mini story about the wardrobe. So often when you have these small roles, you have to you bring your own clothes. Now they're they have a wardrobe department and they say bring bring things that you like that you think are appropriate that fit you because they're basically going to fit you that day, right? So if they ha- if they don't have something that fits you well, you've at least brought things that work for you. Mm-hmm. Desperate Housewives, I wore I just threw on a dress that day and I brought a ton of clothes. The wardrobe had pulled all these clothes and they looked at my dress and said, we like the dress you're wearing. I was like, no, no, this was wadded up on the floor this morning. They were like, no, we like it. So I ended up wearing my own clothes. I was so excited to get a call from wardrobe department for Boston Legal. They said, we want you to come in for a fitting. I was like, what? That's great. So I went in for a fitting. They had the most fabulous outfits there for me to try on and they all fit like a glove. And I, I think my outfit was amazing. It's a bummer that you only saw it so briefly. But, of course, my mother paused it right when I come in. She was like, oh, that's a great outfit. You look wonderful. That skirt's really nice. Did you get to keep it? I was like, no, unfortunately. And you don't even get to see my great boots. But it's just really, they had a wonderful, I have to say, extra kudos to the wardrobe department because so often the smaller roles they just don't have time to focus on. Oh, this and they is really took time to, to pull a great outfit for my characters, though. And that skirt, I just have to mention, matches their hair. It's perfect. It's Isn't rust. that weird? <laughs> I know. It's this fabulous light yes. brown suede. and it was just... I'm going to just take this opportunity to ask about the wardrobe department. Now, is there a women's wardrobe, men's wardrobe, two different people, two different teams, whatever? They ha- it's all one group of people, and it's, it's just rooms and rooms of amazing clothes. And I, I have to say, just... You know, there are several shows that everyone looks great on television, but on this show in particular, the clothes really fit well. They're, of course, it's, it's upscale for the most part, but they all it all looks really effortless, you know, and that I think that is such a, a tribute to how they run their wardrobe department because it's just really smart, savvy, stylish people who know how to fit clothes on people. And they have tailors yeah. that just you know, make adjustments to the clothes so that it's not just off the rack. You know, it's really tailored to that actor's, you know, body. And that makes all the difference, I think. I imagine designer type clothes, certainly for the men's suits, I would imagine. Or I'm sure they are all all upscale. We as fans wax poetically on the, the choice of suits and ties. And Shirley's outfits, everybody just looks mm-hmm. so good. But man, especially the way they dress... The top team, the Denny's, the Allen's, yeah. the Brad's, just amazing. Yeah, it's true. And I just think the women look, look look so beautiful. And also what I love about about this show is that they don't 
just hire young, perfect-looking, per, you know. Mm-hmm. I, it, it's really it's a mixed it's a mixed bag of ages and types, and they they still make everyone look just beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love that. Oh, this show, and I just what you said about the ages is fantastic because except for you know the major cast, you know, except for. Julie Bowen, they're mm-hmm. all 40 and over and some way over. So Right, right. Yeah, it's true. It's fabulous. It's and that right. may be, you know, hurting ABC is not so keen about the, you know, the lower, the, the 18 to whatever demographic. They certainly go up to 49. Right. But that's where they struggle a little bit. But, oh, we love them. We love yeah, the, the older it's true. actors. It's oh, true. That's great. You know, boy, time is flying by and we got through one scene. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta play this sound bite because the very first line of Denny sitting in prison, he's sitting in a jail cell. Yes. Yeah, you know, one of many that he sat in before in this, ep- <laughs> this series. And in comes Alan to tell me, this is serious stuff, by the way, and pay attention to this first line. Thought he was a quail. I'm not laughing. It's total self defense. After I threatened to kill him, the bastard threatened to kill me. It's not right. Why were you carrying the gun? I have a constitutional right to earn. Not a concealed weapon, you know. Oh, yes, I do. And the Supreme Court's going to say so. As soon as they finish overturning Roe v. Wade. (laughs) Denny, this time you've gone way too far. You always say that. No, I don't. Paul Lewison does. Besides, you shot a man, another man. I'm telling you, I had no choice. Man was going to kill me. And there's, there's Debbie Kelly's little Republican point of view. Not that he has a one, but he has to always put the right to bear arms as soon as exactly. we overturn Roe versus overturning Wade. Overturning Roe v. Wade, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, I thought he was a quail. I know, I know. And when they bring that up again later, that's funny too. They do. What, now, what did they, what is that line later? He says, um, he says, I, I laughed when I heard the vice president, uh, mistook a man for, uh, oh, a quail. Yeah. And then, um, Alan, Alan says, you were the only one laughing. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> Something words, like that. Sarcastically. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. And now a quick soundbite, 30 seconds of the wonderful Judge Robert Sanders. Now, did you get to meet any of the other cast members before? Uh, I did not, unfortunately. It. I know. Oh. I love the judge. Oh, judge. And that was Shelly Berman. Yeah. Shelly Berman has been on as a judge before. I hope they bring him back because he's just a riot. Yes. <laughs> Let's listen to this. Case number 62345, the Commonwealth versus Denny Crane. Alan Shore for the defendant. We'll waive reading of the charges. Oh, dear God, it's you. I know who I am, counsel. You don't need to tell me it's me. I know perfectly well it's me. That superfluous information that is tantamount to jibber-jabber. I do not tolerate jibber-jabber in my courtroom. The defense enters a plea of not guilty. I move for a probable cause hearing. Why? Why? First off, because I'm entitled to. Second, because I think... He shot him. The victim is in the hospital. I think I have enough probable cause, Mr. Shoup. Actually, Your Honor, uh, since our last get-together, I've changed my name from Shoup to Shore. I figured since it's already on my driver's license and passport, not to mention all the pleadings before you, though I'd never presume you to read pleadings, of course, they're... Jibber-jabber. The victim is, in fact, scheduled to be released from the hospital today. It was simply a shoulder wound, which is where my client was hoping the bullet would land once the gun accidentally went off after the victim threatened to shoot my client, putting him in reasonable fear for his life. Your Honor, if he wants a probable cause hearing, let him call the arresting officer. The arresting officer wasn't there. 
care. It was only my client and Dr. Fields. We're talking about attempted murder here. The damage to Mr. Crane's reputation could be irreparable. These charges never should have been filed, and I should be allowed a probable cause here. You talk too much. (laughs) Assuming the victim is physically able... We will reconvene at 3 p.m. tomorrow, you talker. <laughs> Enough of this, this poopycock. You could just hear slightly <laughs> the music goes up. Poopycock? Poopycock? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mouthing those words. Everybody is. And of course, the, the name change, right? Shoop. Exactly. I've changed my name. <laughs> Since we last met. Shoop to shore. <laughs> We're just taking... This this judge is the greatest because he just you came up with the jibber jabber in the last episode he was right in. right <laughs> oh, I mean David E <laughs> Kelly I keep trying to attribute all these great lines to the actors <laughs> I mean I'm sure you guys have great lines but <laughs> right in this in this instance I think we can attribute it to the writers That's right now Sydney he's had to be hospitalized I mean he got winged in the clavicle <laughs> this is not a good exactly thing. you know I'm sure Cindy had just left the room too she's the one that brought him his magazine. Exactly, because she cares deeply. Yeah, she and she knows that he he doesn't want to read what highlights for kids. You know the things that they always have hanging around the hospital. Exactly, rooms. not three year old magazines. No, right. so she brings him trout. Trout. <laughs> and the cover story of trout is the Pacific salmon with the crisis. <laughs> crisis, right? <laughs> Which is a running theme. We've we've had the Pacific salmon in Finding Nemo. We've had the issue of Pacific salmon back in. Um, Catch and release. Mm-hmm. Both those episodes, by the way, this is another interesting, I'm a numbers person, I guess, Peter McNichol numbers. Oh my goodness. I'm going <laughs> to go crazy. But both those episodes where salmon were, were chief storyline were third episodes of their particular season. <laughs> interesting. Oh, that is interesting. I'm usually not compulsive like that, but when you work at three o'clock in the morning, put together notes, <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of comes out. The coincidences are there. So Sydney's laid up in his hospital room and, and who should walk in, but, Mr. Felony and his lawyer. Right. Oh, no. No, 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 you don't. Get out, Denny. Dr. Fields, I'm Alvin Shore. You undoubtedly know by now that we've subpoenaed you to appear at a probable cause hearing. Well, that's not a very wise ploy, Mr. Shore. What is it you expect me to say? That you forced Denny to shoot you. That you gave him no choice. Oh, you don't want to be calling me to the stand, okay? Dr. Fields, Denny informed me that you're intense desire to die played a significant part in what happened. You know, often when people contemplate dying, they take measure of their legacy. I'm assuming yours thus far consists of many things. Denny assured me honesty is one of them. I shall count on you to be honest in that witness chair tomorrow, sir. Well, now, I wouldn't count on anything if I were you. Oh, man. So he's, <laughs> But he does get dragged into the court, does have to testify, which... I think everybody would have wished he just stayed at home. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we're going to fast forward through that whole storyline and just go to the climax, the, the second climax, of course. The first one was very effectively done <laughs> with the shotgun. <laughs> but um, as we like to wrap things up in nice little bows, we've got the ending with a shotgun, with a gun as well. Exactly. <laughs> Several <laughs> of guns. Another surprise gun. And now while we listen to this, I want you to think about any... Um, other thoughts you've had about this whole storyline because I know you witnessed a lot of it as a viewer and you know watching that were you only have set that one day is that correct that one long that's correct right all right but you may have noticed a little things going on I would love love to get your sort of you were in the middle of it kind of commentary on this okay so here we are Sydney's in court 
he's on the stand and he's being questioned. Okay, I was sick of his antics and I told him so. And in fact, you called him an empty sack. You told him he led a meaningless life. You provoked him to pull his gun, didn't you? Maybe so. I don't know. Who cares? What is this poopy cock? What kind of doctor are you? Your Honor, if I may proceed. Oh, go on then. Dr. Fields, once Mr. Crane produced his weapon, you drew yours. And you told him if he didn't shoot you, you'd shoot him. Did you not say that, sir? Obviously. You know that I did. You, in fact, wanted him to shoot you so you wouldn't have to shoot yourself and your family could collect the life insurance to pay for your son's Ivy League education. Well, it certainly sounds like you were there. And, in fact, you gave him to the count of three, didn't you? Shoot you by the count of three or you'd kill him. That's right. Mm -hmm. And you counted it off. One, two, and three. Don't anybody leave this room. It's this jibber-jabber. Shut up! That wouldn't be jibber-jabber, Your Honor. That's a gun. Anybody leaves this room and I will shoot Mr. Shore. If I might object to that. How did you get in with that? My brother is a lawyer, and I came in the back door with his bar card. I guess the question, Dr. Fields, is why? Why? Because all my life, I sat in that chair. That's why. Listening to other people who had lives far more grander than mine while I just sat tucked away in my office leading no life at all, vicariously coaching other people, watching them get rich like this, this nutcase here. And I couldn't stand it anymore. I did crack. I wasn't going to just stand around being stand around some, some sort of impotent little spectator to my own life. And I'm sick of any society that, that glamorizes the eccentrics and the psychopaths and the belligerents when there's the meek and the wise. If I could just get you to point that in any other direction. Shut up! You think you're the only one who likes to live big, Danny? You think that... You think that by paying me $600 an hour that that entitles you to belittle me? 600 Shut up! <laughs> you stand belittled now, Danny. Why don't I just shoot your best friend here? Why not? I mean, he's your real therapist. He's the one you tell your secrets to. Why don't I just shoot him? Dr. Fields, please put the gun down. I didn't shoot before, Danny, but I will this time. I really will. Sidney, I took that once. Don't make me do it again. With what? This. <laughs> oh! oh. said you'd never so much as look at a gun again. I never said I wouldn't shoot one. <laughs> what I think is so interesting is that they there was the scene earlier where you really got the feeling that Denny Crane had his own sort of come to Jesus moment as they say that he really did he really was shook up that he had shot this person. That's right. Wasn't he talking about I shot you shot other I men. Shot this man, I shot a man. He he pays taxes. He's a Republican. Republican? <laughs> you know, he was talking about really how it really um, it scared him. It seemed to really scare him that he mm. had had actually shot this man. So you you really didn't see this coming that he would a you know have a have a gun in this position, but b that he would that he would do it again because you really got the feeling he he thought, gosh, you know, this is I can't do this again. Yeah. And then he did it again. <laughs> and he did it again. I never said I wouldn't shoot one. Exactly. And all this drama going on, and Judge Mr. Jibberjabber, Judge Saunders, is like six hundred dollars. <laughs> That's what stuck out in his head. Exactly. An hour. An hour. <laughs> I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> oh, you know, I think um, one note I wanted to make was that David Kelly loves lampooning these psychotherapists. The therapists. I mean, I think I don't know what he really thinks about it, but it seems like <laughs> they keep popping up and being made fun of. <laughs> it, they're pretty great fodder for. 
or comedy and drama, so it would mm-hmm. it would stand to reason. Well, and it gives, of course, the character a chance to you know, give commentary on his life, you know, <laughs> expository, whatever they call it. And uh, in this case, um, Sydney, I love it. Through David E. Kelly said through Sydney that uh, we glamorize the eccentrics and the psychopaths in this world, and and that seems to be what's happening, of course, on Boston Legal. We, right. We glamorize the eccentricities of of Denny and Allen. Exactly. You know, Brad is kind of like the lame one because he's like the normal one. Right. It's true. <laughs> and Paul. It's completely true. Yeah. And, and of course, what we always like to, I think a lot of us talked about is the Regis question. Whenever Spader goes on Regis and Kelly or uh, many other talk shows, they pull out the, the same old question. Will you play eccentrics and weirdos and dark people? <laughs> you know, and it's like he answers it every time. You know, not really. I do comedy <laughs> too, but you know, they love that. So. Again. Well, it's funny as an actor too. You can never think of your character as being a weirdo. You you know you ah. have to sort of see them as you find the reasons for why they do what they do because it's got to make perfect sense to that person. You you know most weird people don't think of themselves as weird. That's interesting. That's a good so, point. I yeah. one of your characters. I mean, you've had to probably play a character that was eccentric, but to her, she was just normal. Yes, I once had to play a mean southern white trash slut and it, you know it's a big character reach and i gotta tell you i didn't think of myself as being a mean white trash person at all i thought i was just trying to make the best of a bad situation oh that's how you looked at it that's yeah. how you have to look at it. i think from an actor perspective yeah and otherwise that, you're kind of you're doing that self-referential thing oh right because you can't ever smirk denny would never smirk at any of his little comments exactly you know, unless they were lame you know jokes that he thought were funny that no one else did. Right. And I, th- I think the fact that he doesn't refer to himself or, ha- or give a look like, oh, it wasn't that a clever thing I just said, it is makes it more interesting to watch mm-hmm. because he's not just being a, a, a smart ass. He's, he's actually saying what he believes, you know. That's right. Sidney also made a point to, I thought, show his jealousy. I mean, I think to some degree, probably Denny talked about Alan in therapy sessions. Yes, I got that feeling too. <laughs> and did Sydney feel a little bit like, what am I even doing here? You know? Right, right. Jealous. Yeah. yeah, he's your real therapist. Yeah, that's right. You tell all his secrets to him. And at the end, Denny explains it by saying, you, you never introduce your wife to your mistress. Right. You know, these things were the two men in his life. Again, David E. Kelly pushing that little sort of exactly. slashy envelope. There. Exactly. <laughs> so I do want to quick really quick let everybody know how this the verdict went out because yes he did fire a gun in the courtroom which would you think would compound the issues (laughs) he's still on trial for you know shooting a man right so how did it all play out well we're we're talking about judge saunders here so we don't know (laughs) it could be anything your honor i saved this man's life probably yours and he's in here waving around his poopy cock with his mumbo jumbo jibber jabber at a minimum the charges of carrying a concealed weapon should be considered national security dr fields is a terrorist he terrorized this courtroom He's a Democrat. I've had enough of all this. (laughs) Mr. Crane, you had no excuse to be carrying a gun. Second Amendment, Founding Fathers, you probably knew them. Chipper (laughs) Chipper. But here, you did use the gun to save lives, quite possibly my own. I'm going to let you off this time with just a stern warning. Thank you. I haven't given it yet. (laughs) Mr. Crane... I warn you not to do this again. Not guilty. Adjourned. I had to do it just for that whole thing. Well, thank you, Judge, and walked away. It's like, I haven't yeah. given it to you. 
exactly. And then he really didn't have anything to say. Right. Well, uh, but he made it very stern when oh, he said it. Yeah. Yes, it resonated. <laughs> So that brings us to the end, Deb, of that storyline, which it was fabulous. There's three other, there are two other storylines in this thing, but I know it was jam packed. Uh, Deb, I want to find out a little bit more about you. You've done so much in your life before Boston Legal, of course, but a lot of it was live, improv, and stage, and off Broadway. I'm just amazed looking at your credits. Are well, you amazed at your life? <laughs> it's kind of an eclectic mix when you when you sum it all up. It's true. Um, I was uh, born in Atlanta, Georgia, and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. But I went to New York City on a dance scholarship when I was 18. Oh, what kind of dance? Um, theater dance, mostly. Okay. Um, I was on the European tour of West Side Story. I'm amazed. Um, what was that like touring around Europe and in, in West Side Story? It was the, the most fun. It was, it was the only show I've done. We had about a four-month run. And it was the only show I've done for that long that I didn't get tired of doing. Uh-huh. And part of it's because we were doing the original choreography, but um, we went to the most amazing places. We actually opened in Algeria. Wow. And we went, then we went all through Germany and Austria, and oh, it, it was a great trip. It and, was really fun. And to hear you say, it's the only time you didn't get bored doing the same thing for four months. Welcome to the rest of us in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Do it for years on end. That's great about your job, though, because it's so many jobs. Well, it's true. It's true. I mean, I when I got back to New York, I, I've always done plays and theater, and I, I've done some off-Broadway shows. I wrote and uh, co-wrote and toured a children's show with Robert Festinger, who actually went on to write the Oscar-nominated In the Bedroom, mm. the movie In the Bedroom. Oh, um, oh that's right, with um, the actress... Basic and yes. Marissa Tomei. Yeah, yes, this was his early days. And then I decided to go back to school. I got my degree at New York University. Okay. After I graduated, I decided to get a real job, a nine-to-five job. A real job? A real job. What did you do? Made my parents very happy. <laughs> I actually went into uh, publishing and specifically book clubs, Book of the Month Club, Children's Book of the Month Club. It was great. It, the, some of the most fun people that I've ever worked with in the real world. Were you writing or marketing or? Both. Okay. And um, and I was, for a while, running one of the book clubs, the Mac Professional computer book club. Mm. It was a real mixed bag, which I think is why I found it interesting. So it was a little bit of writing, a little bit of marketing, and we started building websites for different divisions of the publishing company as well as for the book clubs. So that sort of I got involved with the internet pretty early on. Excellent. Which well I really and enjoyed. since you were in you were pushing Mac publications as well at some point, right? It's true. <laughs> so. It's true. Yeah, I have a I do have a fondness for the Mac for the Mac. Mm. I do. Um, but currently, I'm on the PC. I know. I feel like I'm cheating. No, but. it's okay to be. Agno- I mean, to be all encompassing. This is a free world. This is true. I'm this a is PC very girl. true. Yeah. Well, something pulled you back in. What it pulled did. you? Back you know, in? I I just well in the evenings I was always doing plays. I I studied at Second City. I studied improv at Second City, which I really enjoyed. Oh my goodness, that's it in was, New York City, right? It yeah. was in New York, yeah. Wow. And that was so much fun and just so so different. In, in, in terms of the training than any other training that I had had in the theater. Um, and I wrote my own one-woman show, which was really well-reviewed. And I picked up an, the accordion, and I was actually in a band called Orson Welk, um, <laughs> which Welk. was a, original music, accordion and guitar, and that was a blast. So, so in the evenings, I was always doing that sort of thing. But, you know, I after 9-11, I had one of those, um, what we call in the South, come-to-Jesus moments. Mm-hmm. And I thought, really... What am I spending most of my time doing? And is that really what I 
am passionate about. And what I'm passionate about is writing and performing. You know, I don't want to look back on my life and think, oh, if only I'd, I'd rather look back and say, well, I did that and it didn't work out, but at least I tried. Yes, it's been so no regrets. Thought, yeah, exactly. So I, um, I saved my money and I decided to actually move to Los Angeles three years ago. And, and had, but New York has writing and performing opportunities, well, right? It does, but it also had a lot of other baggage for me there. I mean, I'd lived in New York a long time, mm-hmm. and I was ready for a change of lifestyle. And I decided, what different planet than Los Angeles <laughs> it from is New York quite City? Different, yes. Different in every possible way. Uh-huh. And there's things I really miss about New York, but I have to say, I kind of love Los Angeles. Okay, um, one thing you love about Los Angeles, tell me now. <laughs> I kind of love, now this is going to sound really odd, but I love being in my car. Mm. After years of being on the subway and being pressed up against six million other people mm-hmm. every morning and every evening, I kind of love being in my car and it's like a little pod I get to climb yes. into. And I'm in it a lot because I'm driving to auditions and classes and, and the theater, but I can play music really loud or I can yes. sing really loud or... You sing and drive. <laughs> I I, you know, I even practice screaming when I'm on my way to an audition for Boston Legal. I don't suspect that's that unusual in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, I think it's not. You see a lot of people doing a lot of weird things in cars. But and what kind of pod do you have? I Well, I have a, a 99 Toyota Corolla, okay. <laughs> which is an amazing shape. It's, it's the cutest. I love, I just love it. And I know we're, it's all about environmental and going green and I should get a Prius and, you know, really, but I. I just love my little car. I want to talk about some of the, the television because that's primarily, it seems like that's primarily what you see down on the West Coast as opposed to New York. Yes. Desperate Housewives. Bill Maher. Real time with Bill Maher. Oh, my goodness. We don't miss an episode of that. It's quite a show, I have to say. <laughs> Give me a little rundown of what, what some of the television jobs you've had. Just, in, you know, a quick elevator pitch. You know, the time it takes to ride an elevator down. What was it like on um, Bill Maher? What was he like? Bill Maher is, is amazing. I mean, I think he's one of the smartest guys out there and he's smart enough to surround himself with a staff of writers and producers who are also incredibly smart and really funny guys just hysterically funny folks just to hang out with his delivery is great too. his delivery is amazing and scott carter who's one of the executive producers of the show uh, i had worked with in new york and when i came out here i i came out here with with you know no agent no industry contacts to speak of and no job which Wow. my parents, as you can imagine. Um, but Scott Carter called me up and said, we're doing this sketch at the beginning of the show. They don't, they don't always do a sketch, but he said, you know, I, th- I thought you could come in and, and do this. So I went in, and it was just so much fun. And it was actually uh, a sketch about, it was a really tasteful sketch about um, the Terry Schiavo case, at, which was very big at the time. Mm-hmm. And the sketch was so edgy that HBO actually said, we prefer you not run it. But HBO did not let it air, and he could say the F word on there. It was, I know, it was that edgy. So I'm a little, I'm kind of perversely proud of that. But um, they, were, they were kind enough to call me back, and I've done um, three other sketches since then that have aired. That's just great fun. You know, I'm um, finding I enjoy Bill Maher now more than Daily Show, and I have to do it once a week instead. But And it's not fake news, you know? It's true. It's John true. It's great, but I mean, you, I learn a lot more from Bill. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And it, it's a little bit more of a time commitment to sit and, and watch Bill Maher, but it is, you, you do, you get so much out of it. And just the different points of view that he has from his mm-hmm. guests is mm-hmm. just he always has a Republican, doesn't he, poor guy? <laughs> <laughs> Sacrificial lamb. But they hold their own. I mean, he, he, they, they just have, I think, great yeah. taste in who they select to be on the show. 
Now, I remember Des, and I have not been a regular watcher of Desa Housewives, mm-hmm. but isn't it funny that, you know, you can watch one show a month, and but it'll be the one that stands out. <laughs> I remember you that standing in that to? dry exactly. cleaners. Yes. So you you were with Brie, you, well, the character Brie. Yes, and, and, and Rex's mother. Yes. Um, Shirley Knight, who's an amazing actress. Um, and that was so much fun. And um, that was also, we were on location, so that was, it was great to just hang out for the day. Well, with that was a real world actresses. shop. That was it a real was. world shop. It was in Burbank. It was actually a tuxedo shop in oh. Burbank that they sort of took over for the day. Mm. And um, so, such great people there. Just and March across so so amiable and so relaxed, and it was it was just so much fun. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> and you didn't have to scream in that one. <laughs> I did not have to scream. This is true. <laughs> but we run out of time with you, and I really appreciate you being here and giving those great stories. Well, thank you so much. It's just so much fun to, to deconstruct this, this kind of show. So thank you for if the opportunity. If it's fun for you, just think of the millions, I mean, the 12 million people that watch this episode. I know. That I know. are like, oh, wow, I had no idea. It's just <laughs> so much more behind the scenes. I wish they should do this on all television shows. Yeah, it's true. So thank you for your giving. And now, of course, you're about to embark on the rest of your day, but you have other projects coming up. Can you fill us in and remind us where we can go and find out more about what you're doing? I do. Um, I actually, uh, an essay that I wrote was going to be appearing on a, a website called freshyarn.com, which mm-hmm. is a really great website, pretty much dedicated to personal essays, which are from wonderful writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have written a sketch comedy show with my writing partner and friend, Richard Kuhlman, mm-hmm. and it's called Deb and Rick on a Stick. And it's going to be playing at Second City here in Los Angeles this summer. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. Okay, yeah. so we can, now can we um, go to your website and, and read a little bit more about that? Or can we go read the essay itself at that site? I'm actually about to put the essay on my site, and there will be more information about We We previewed the Deb and Rick on a Stick uh, at my theater company, the Alliance Repertory Company in Burbank. So um, there's information yeah. about what we uh, did before, and then we're, I'm going to put up more information about the show that we'll be running this summer. So definitely check out debheight.com for more information. H-I-E-T-T. And also go to bostonlegal.org. If you go to our resources, our links page, there's a place that we have for guest stars and links to their websites. So yours will be there. We'll always link to you there. Thank you so much. Um, Any other television or stage projects besides that big summer? Not that I know of yet. You know, the great thing about this business is um, you get a call on a Friday afternoon to show (laughs) up for an audition on Friday at 5 o'clock, and then by 8 o'clock that night, you have a role. So That's right. And then how long did you have to wait before you were shooting? About um, it was the following Tuesday. Wow. That, it does go fast. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's it's a day-to-day experience here. So okay. that's what keeps it interesting. Well, I'm going to keep watching for you and checking into your website. Thank you, Deb. Thank you so much, Dana. I really, I think what you're doing is, is so interesting, and, and uh, I, I really appreciate all the work that you do on it. Well, same to you. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. That's great. That's um, that's a great opportunity to play "When the Walls Come Tumbling Down" by John Cougar Mellencamp. I think this is a probably the right theme song for what we're going to talk about here, just for a moment. That is all the self references made during race episodes. Uh, 
kind of a head nod to the concept of the fourth wall. If you wonder what the fourth wall is, occasionally we talk about it because Boston Legal is rife with self-references. And that would be um, taken, well, this is from, you can educate yourself a little bit by reading about the fourth wall in, in Wikipedia. But it's a concept of in theater, you have the three walls that surround the set, the stage. The audience are looking in through the open fourth wall uh, to see in the action of what's happening on stage. When you break down that fourth wall, it kind of means that you're reaching outside of the story and referencing real life, or in the case of Boston Legal, fake life as well. That would be other scenes from earlier episodes of Boston Legal. So we're going to look at some of those, but just for a moment, I'm going to jump in here and talk about the timing of the episode, Race Ipsa. This was actually brought to my attention from someone, very intelligent person in my forum who mentioned that it was interesting that a lot of the ABC shows, the big ones, Lost, Desperate Housewives, Grey's Anatomy, spent the same week that Race Ispa was aired showing flashback or recap episodes. These are episodes that kind of catch people up with what's been happening so far in the series in preparations for May Sweep. So they get all into wanting to watch during May when, of course, the ratings are measured. And Boston Legal hasn't had, of course, a recap Except, I think in a quirky kind of way, this is David E. Kelly's version of a recap because there were so many references to other episodes. They may not have been picked up on by any but the most avid of Boston Legal viewers, but we're going to point a few out for you right now um, throughout the entire show. All those words, sometimes just visuals, were waved around in front of us. Uh, some of them covered with Deb when we talked about Sidney Fields and Denny Crane, and in the office at the very beginning of the episode, Denny referred to everyone having a song. Everybody has a song in them, Sidney. You should know all about that. And what he was referring to is an Alan McBeal. That was a big theme, having a theme song. Everybody had their own song. And I think, actually, it was the therapist. It was Alan McBeal's therapist, which a woman played by Tracy Ullman, who brought up that initially said, Ali, you need to have a theme song. And then I think it spread like wildfire, the concept that is through the rest of the characters in the episode. Also, we talked about Denny referring to his kidney stone because in real life, he had his kidney stone removed. I think we all won't forget that. And Denny says, I feel like everything I wanted to express in life is still bottled up inside you, like like a kidney stone. <laughs> Remember when he held that up on the Regis and Kelly show? Right after the opening credits, this was actually a very good one because this was totally blatant. There was no mistake. This was definitely a landslide of a wall coming down. Alan Shore and Shalina Hall meet in the hallways of outside of a courtroom, and he is reconnecting with her because they actually had some scenes. She was in several episodes of the very end of season one, most notably Episode 17, Death Be Not Proud, when she and Alan tried a case on the death penalty together. And then Boston Legal went on a brief hiatus while we had a few episodes of Grey's Anatomy to see if it would fly. Well, it flew. It flew big time. And so Boston Legal never came back for the season. And in fact, the next time we saw Alan was six months later on a different night. They used to be on Sundays, they were on Tuesdays. And Alan and Shalina never got their moment of saying goodbye or resolving the kiss that they shared in episode 17. Until this moment. God, the last time I saw you. I think it was a Sunday, then I was taken off the air, you went off to do movies, then I got switched to Tuesdays. And here we are, with old footage. 
And Kerry Washington, who plays Shalina, did in fact go on to do movies and was sort of unavailable, I guess, you would think, to refilm any of the scenes for Ray Ipsa. So they kind of chopped up that episode and those storylines, used some of them in Men to Boys at the beginning of this season and used the trial of Walking While Black with Ellen and Shalina in this episode. Another similar theme is the fish theme. In fact, this is so prevalent that we've started a, a whole thread on our forum at boston-legal.org about Alan and fish. And so this was just a visual wall situation. This was when Sidney Field was in the hospital recovering from being winged by Denny. And he was reading a magazine as they enter the room. It was Trout Magazine. And the story on the cover, which you could just barely see before he threw it down on his lap and, and let out a exasperated sigh, was a new crisis for Pacific salmon. And as I mentioned when we were talking about this with Deb Height, it's pulling in um, the epi- the pair of episode threes from season one and season two. Episode three, season one, and catch and release, the whole salmon crisis came about with Donnie Crane and Brad Chase having a trial about that. And then season two, episode three, Finding Nemo, everybody went up to British Columbia and in the course of Recovering from Tara, they also help save the Pacific salmon from sea lice, Klingons. Oh, and just recently, Alan confessed to Denny had flounder for lunch. Small moment. That was in the balcony scene in Ivan the Incorrigible. Oh, and one more fish moment that I definitely want to call attention to was from the episode Smile. I think that was episode 14, 15 of this season. I can't remember. Where the young girl, the the 12-year-old girl, couldn't smile because of nerve damage but she was a fantastic artist and she drew a picture for alan and gave it to him and it were based on a compilation of several of several drawings from the art of marguerite and our friend deb from montreal who does trek in the courtroom every week has done a wonderful study of marguerite in the episode smile in this picture and I'm going to post that up on our homepage here in a day or two and also on the Smile episode page. But you definitely want to take a look at it because the picture that was, that was created for the episode is, like I said, a compilation of several of Magritte's drawings. And she has laid all this out very much a study of art. <laughs> I really appreciate her doing that. Moving on to other self-references of walls and stuff is... The one made by Melissa. Now, Melissa is not so happy with Alan and Shalina reconnection, and she lets him know it, warns him, in fact. I'm not terribly comfortable with you working closely with this woman. What? I'm tapped into office gossip. I happen to know you kissed her during the death penalty thingy case. You're kissing me now, remember? Melissa, you and I kissed once. I barely participated. We certainly didn't agree to any kind of exclusivity. No hickeys or pins or letterman jackets. You and I are in a relationship, Alan. The fact that you don't realize it doesn't give you license to be unfaithful. You're mad as a hatter. When two people sleep together... That was a night terror thing. I'm talking about the sex. What sex? The sex you and I both know is coming. Don't fall for her, Alan. She's just a guest star. The death penalty thingy case. <laughs> That's good. Finally, a small little self-reference. This one is in the balcony scene, which we'll play here in just a moment. Listen for it. Denny refers to living big, which is, of course, something that he and Alan wished each other in episode 16, also called live big, when they said, live big, my friend, live big. 
He refers to it again here. Ah, still at large. And don't think I take it for granted. Canada, Japan, England, any number of those pinko countries. I'd be in jail for shooting somebody. God bless America. I had sex with her. With whom? Kate Smith. Before she put on the weight. From the mountains to her prairies, she was one hell of a ride. So, Denny, what happened? Your love affair with guns back on? Alan, lives were saved because I was armed. We all should be armed. Every citizen should have one strapped to his waist. Hell, the criminals all have them. The answer isn't less guns, it's more. Surprised you didn't think of it sooner. Mad cow. So, how was it with Cicelli now? Incredible pheromones. Mm. Had I been a moth, we'd have made it and died by now. Then, of course, there's Melissa. I don't know what to make of her. It's good to have choices. (laughs) So it was funny to finally meet your therapist. A man never introduces his wife to his mistress. That's a shame. Makes for a hell of a party. (laughs) So, do you think it's a sign of Alzheimer's if you can't remember how many people you shot? As long as you can remember who. love those balcony scenes. Well, due to the fact that we have just run out of time, we're not going to delve into the other storylines, the storyline of Brad and Denise kissing in the office and, of course, the race issue, the court case there. But we're lucky enough to have Deb from Montreal here to give us a quick overview of a lot of the themes that came up during Boston Legal's Race Ipsa and how they relate to the Star Trek universe. Deb, thanks so much for calling in for your weekly look at Trek in the courtroom. My pleasure, Dana. This was a really interesting week. Yes, it was. Well, how so? You mean in the episode or personally? Yeah, in the episode. We are talking about race ipsa, and you did find some comparisons, which we've already posted up on the website. So anybody, a reminder, anybody wants to see what we're talking about, go to boston-legal.org, click on the Trek link. Also, we have a section in our forum where you can comment on some of the things that Deb has found. So yeah. stand and behind there's one your... contributor, uh, Sue B., who I really have to thank because she found a comparison that I had actually let linger and I didn't include in the um, in the actual paper copy or the, the comparative on the website. And I think I'm going to add it in because it's really too important to leave out. It's an amazing coincidence. Well, let's get right to it. Let's start talking about, in whatever order you want, the similarities between Race Ipsa and Star, Star Trek. Trek. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm going to go in order okay. and uh, to talk about the cute plot, the kissing plot. <laughs> and uh, in Boston Legal, they make kissing a game in every episode. And certainly, the kisses are always under very unusual circumstances. Like the first one between um, Tara and Alan, you know, it was... After what is what she what did she say to him? It was the most oddest comment ever. You smell good. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's is there a way of saying I really love you, mm-hmm. or I really like you, or I really lust off you? <laughs> <laughs> they always had camouflage or double speak to 
to um, convey their real intentions. Mm-hmm. And the kiss between Alan and Shalina was in a very tender moment in a hotel room where they were caught alone working late at night trying to uh, rescue somebody from death row. Mm-hmm. And Kirk in Star Trek, uh, the, the kiss between him and Yuhura was um, sort of kind of put upon them by um, uh, these other people who had mental powers to kind of force Kirk and Yuhura to kiss. And that's and, that's disturbing right there because wouldn't, you know, was it not socially acceptable of their own you know, free will? <laughs> right. It took away their own free will. And that was in an episode called um, Plato's Stepchildren. And uh, in another episode called The you know, Gangsters of Triskillian, he kisses a character by the name of Shauna because she has him in bondage. There's a pain device around his neck, and so he seduces her in order to get out of that situation. Now, uh, you do have a picture of this bondage outfit on William Shatner, so anybody really curious has to go look at this. this is oh, yeah, the outfits are crazy. They're 1960s, and they're all hippie. Oh, yeah. She has green hair. He has on some kind of strappy thing. <laughs> Yeah. Some black strap. Anyway, that was 1968. But definitely go back and talk a little bit more about the the landmark Uhura kiss. Uh, yes, that was uh, took place on November 22nd, 1968. It was the very first interracial kiss that had been televised, Amazing. and it created a huge stir in the media. It was like you know, <laughs> with you know, but you know, you're coming right out of the days where they wouldn't you know shake. Uh, they couldn't show. Elvis shaking his hips on TV either. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was just a, a couple of years prior. So you can imagine, you know, Dick Van Dyke, uh, they had separate beds in the bedroom. <laughs> Indeed. The whole so time, Dream of Jeannie Belly. Yeah, this, this was actually quite quite a uh, history maker mm-hmm. by our very own William Shatner. And the similarities, the of course, the similarities to Race Ipsa tied in. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, you know there's the kiss between um, <clears throat> Brad and Denise. Well, could which, you you do want to tie in specifically in case anybody who missed the episode wants to know the similarities is that to um Uhura and Shatner or Uhura and Kirk. Is, oh yes, well you know the the kiss between you know Alan and Shalina is an interracial kiss. That's correct. All right. But you know in today's world we don't even and like I said I almost neglected to mention it because it doesn't it doesn't register with us in the same way. Mm-hmm. But back in 1968, you know, this was a, you know, they should pull Star Trek and <laughs> it was, it was different. Mm-hmm. Values changed and, and uh, society has changed a lot. Sometimes for the good and sometimes not. <laughs> and then, you know, the, you know, there was the kiss between Melissa and Alan, which was really Melissa kissing Alan. And it was a very submissive kiss on his part because, like he said, I didn't really participate. <laughs> That's true. Unlike Brad and Denise, who participated fully. Oh, yes. <laughs> that was a good one. That was very funny. Now, the other theme that you called about that you have to share with us is Ebony and Ivory. Explain that. Ebony and Ivory. There's an, the other story in Race Ipsa dealt with racial profiling. In Star Trek, the original series, they had uh, a show called Let This Be Your Last Battlefield, and it starred Frank Gorshin. I think he was famous for playing the Riddler on Batman. Mm-hmm. And another fellow, Lou Antonio. And their race, one race was white on the right side and black on the left side. And the other race was black on the right side and white on the right <laughs> on the left side. 
and they were, you know, really mirror images to each other, and they hated each other, and they fought, and they were in a battle, and the crew of the Enterprise couldn't figure out <laughs> why. <laughs> to to the, to everybody else, they appeared to be the same. Mm-hmm. And you know, the story uh, or the moral of the story is just that they could never get past their color differences, and they were to you know be doomed to struggle for the rest of time. Uh, one of the characters in that story, Lou Antonio, was the director for Race Ipsa. Pretty amazing coincidence there. And uh, Sue B reminded me of that on the message board, so very grateful. Not just that that he was in the original Star Trek and directed this Race Ipsa, but his character name. Yes, the character's name of these two fellas, uh, Frank Gorshin played uh, Commissioner Bailey, and Lou Antonio played uh, a character called Loquet. The actual expression for race ipsa is called race ipsa locutor. Mm-hmm. And the name of Loquet and locutor in Latin are very similar in spelling. <clears throat> and the actual expression sort of means um, the matter speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. So oh. I kind of thought that that was a very interesting uh, allusion to the original Star Trek as well. I feel like this isn't even a coincidence. <laughs> Honestly, Dana, we've been doing these uh, little segments uh, and comparisons for many, many episodes right now, and I'm absolutely certain that the writers are drawing from Star Trek in small but significant ways. Almost to amuse, legal. amuse themselves, maybe, not thinking that anybody else would pick up on some of them, obviously. They... Well, because they have such two big... Star Trek uh, characters, Captain Kirk and Odo from the Deep Space Nine mm-hmm. series that, you know, they probably bring to the table a few ideas <laughs> with the writers. And the writers are probably having a, a big kick having two huge icons from the Star Trek franchise on their show because they really are such um, over-the-top characters. <laughs> and, you know, with and, and I guess in maybe some respects, maybe even David E. Kelly is a, a Star Trek fan. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? I I don't know. He did write this episode, so that could be, you know, something that was just, maybe even Lou came on the set later, you know, when he was ready to direct and said, did you know this? And they said, yes, we did. <laughs> I'd love be to great. be a fly on the wall during the writing episode. Oh, I man. Know. One day, I hope we get on this podcast a writer, a director, or, you know, I would love to get Lou on. Wouldn't that be great? That, that, that would be extraordinary because I'm sure that he could let us know for certain you know, how much uh, was intentional and how yeah. much of it was incidental. Yes. You know, concerning those references. but uh, and, I, and I think some of them are intentional and I think some of them might be unintentional simply by the fact that Star Trek is a, is a vast body of work that incorporates so many themes that, of course, you know, some themes mm-hmm. are going to be the same. Yes. Well, let's put it out there. Let's make it official. If anyone is listening that um, knows the answers to this, I mean, someone involved with the writing or the the directing, you know who you are. Go ahead and send us a note anonymously um, at bostonillegal at gmail.com. We want to know. All right, to tie it all up, uh, we kind of have already covered some of this, but you always do pull in wonderful pictures in your document that we have up on the website of Star Trek alumni in this episode. Yeah, and uh, this week there wasn't a whole lot, but I think the Lou Antonio one was a was a was a was a huge uh, coincidence, and I will try and find a picture of him without makeup, so that mm-hmm. and perhaps revise the, the document so that um, to bring it up to date. 
But uh, this week we had Michael Anson, who's appeared in, I think, about five previous Boston Legal episodes. And uh, uh, he plays the character of Judge Paul Resnick, who was mm-hmm. the judge in the uh, race case. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mr. Jibberjabber was the judge in the <laughs> <laughs> other case. Yes. I pulled in some pictures of him in different costumes from the different episodes that he played in and also the different series he was actually in. One of the movies, uh, the movie was First Contact, and he played Security Minister Krola, and uh, he played on a Deep Space episode called uh, The Forsaken, and he paid, played a Vulcan by the name of Ambassador Ambassador Lojal, and he played Voyager um, in an episode called False Pro- Prophets, and he appeared as the Carrion Bard. No character name, just the Carrion Bard. Mm-hmm. Bard is in this, like Shakespeare, yes. <laughs> right. And looks like a uh, he also appeared in an Enterprise episode uh, entitled uh, Stigma, and he was uh, Dr. Kraft, who is also uh, a Vulcan. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so he's a quite a prolific Star Trek alumni guy. And you have pictures of each one of those characters, as well as one of him himself. Well, thank you. Any and, other uh, interesting tidbits you want to share about this episode and similarities? Any 47s? <laughs> No, no 47s. Last week, though, I found a 48, and that just drives me crazy. <laughs> you can't make that fit into a that round into a square peg. <laughs> no, but 47ers will will absolutely say to you that people put 48s in there just to drive the 47ers crazy. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> they're they're highly paranoid. <laughs> and I noticed they you see say 47s they. everywhere. They are highly paranoid. Not you, no. <laughs> well, you know, there, there was at a time there where I was driving along the street and every single license plate that had 47 on it would jump out at me and then my kids would start calling them out to me and then I said, okay, license, plate don't, license plates don't count anymore. <laughs> That's great. Thank yeah. you so much for all the similarities. I'm, I think they're excellent, especially the one with um, Lou Antonio. Amazing. Oh, that was a treat. That was, that was just, you know, I think that one sent out um, quite a few bells for people who who are now following the uh, comparisons because I'm getting some email from people saying, hey, I read this and I saw that and, you know, it's true, it's true. That's great. <laughs> I don't know who they are. They're strangers, but... Oh, it's nice to know that you're making an impact in that in that universe. Well, I think it's definitely a subset of culture out there, of Star Trek fandom, mm-hmm. but, you know, they're there and, uh, and I, can't, I think they make up a percentage of the viewers for Boston Legal. Yes, I do. Well, thank you very much, and we're definitely going to have you back for talking about the next episode, Deep End of the Pool. We only have three more weeks of Boston Legal. Looking forward to it. Yes. Thanks, Deb. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Before we head out of here, I usually like to do a little bit of ratings recap for the episode. We didn't do too badly this week. Race Ipsa saw 9.95 million viewers. That is up from the previous week, where we had only 8.79 million viewers, so it keeps climbing the lead-in less than perfect, that's the comedy less than perfect, just prior to Race Ipsa, only had 5.3 million viewers. So good grief, we went up to 9.95 million viewers from that. So it's definitely appointment TV. Quickly, the ratings were 6.7 over 11 share, and it actually rose halfway through the episode. The first half hour of Race Ipsa was 6.5 over 10, and then went up to 7 over 12 the second half hour. And in that prime demographic, the 18 to 49s, it went from 2.9 to 3.1. So 
younger people were tuning in halfway through. Too bad they missed some of those references, but <laughs> I heard a rumor the DVD will be out in September for season two. We'll, we'll see if that holds true. Coming podcast news. Well, I've just finished a conversation with Boston Legal's vocalist, singer, Billy Valentine. We have spent 90 minutes chatting about the music of Boston Legal, listening to sound bites of his stylings throughout the episode. He's been there for two seasons now and coming up on season three, too. He, of course, sings the theme song. And between Danny Lux, who scores the music, and Billy Valentine, they create quite a little musical montage. And he's working on a CD, and we're going to world premiere some cuts from his CD. So that will be posted shortly. Thank you again to Deb Height for being with me for an hour talking about Ray Sipson, her role in it. Thank you, Deb from Montreal for checking the courtroom. And thank you very much for listening. Appreciate it. If you feel compelled to, drop me a line at bostonillegal at gmail.com or come to our forum and Actually, that would be even better. Make your comments known to everybody in the podcast area of that forum. Um, We're coming up, like I said, to the end of the season. I'm not sure the future of the podcast. I think we might take the summer off, relax a little bit, get a life. Will we do podcasts next season? I don't know. What do you think? Should we? Let me know. Remember to watch Boston Legal on Tuesdays. We only have a few more episodes left. And as we say goodbye, taking us out of here, apropos of nothing whatsoever at all, are the Deadbolts doing a sort of Johnny Cash-esque version of Raindrops Keep Falling on my head. Looks like rain. What is this poopy cup? Raindrops keep falling on my head. Just like the guy who's just too big for his bed. Nothing ever seems to fit. Nothing. Those raindrops are falling. They keep falling. God, falling. Falling on my head. Falling on my head. So I did me some talking to the sun. I said I didn't like the way you got things done. Always sleeping on the job, man. Those raindrops are falling on my head. They keep falling, coming down, falling, 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 falling on my head.